Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for attending today's webinar. I'm really excited that we've got a group here from uh, around the world. And uh, my name is Mark Raven. I am a senior advisor with Kinexus. I'm uh, going to do very little today. I'm going to be a host and moderator for Q&A, but we are joined by four uh, great presenters. Um, they're all from uh, and, and affiliated with Purdue University. And today's webinar is titled, A TP-Cubed Approach to Manage Manufacturing Competitiveness after the pandemic. I'm gonna leave the introductions and, and, uh, of the group um, to Roy, but I wanna first introduce Roy Vasher, and Roy, you can elaborate on your background a little bit, but I wanna thank Roy for reaching out and suggesting that we um, do the webinar, so thank you, uh, Roy, for that. Um, Roy and I first crossed paths, uh, it was over a decade ago. Um, Roy um, is a former Toyota executive who's written a book about Toyota supply chain management, and I had interviewed Roy on uh, my Lean Blog podcast series. And it's great to get reconnected and to hear um, the expertise and the recommendations and advice as we try to figure out not just what's going on right now, but how are we um, going to uh, you know, try to do as well as we can. Let's do better um, as we get through the pandemic here. Um, so with, with that, Roy, let me go ahead and hand it over to you and uh, I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, uh, Mark, for the introduction. Uh, as Mark said, the theme today is the TPQ approach to manage manufacturing competitiveness after the pandemic. Now, don't be uh, alarmed by the word uh, manufacturing because most of these concepts can be applied to any industry. So if you're not in manufacturing, uh, please don't hang up and uh, uh, hopefully you can learn from the examples we're using for manufacturing. As uh, Mark said, I'm gonna introduce uh, my colleagues here in a minute, Annette Iyer, Steve Dunlop, and Angus McLeod, but we're all working with the Doc Center for the Management of Manufacturing Enterprise. That's a multiple. So we use the acronym DECEMI uh, as a shortcut. Uh, the school uh, has been around for over 32 years, helping manufacturing companies improve their productivity and their experience. So with the introductions, uh, Anat Iyer is the uh, uh, member of the faculty at Purdue and also the academic director of Decemi. Steve Dunlop is the, uh, the director of Decemi and uh, Angus McLeod is established consultant for companies around the world, has 13 direct level, director level positions and currently is working as a consultant as am I with the Purdue at the December uh, School. So with that, uh, let me go ahead and get into some of the uh, ideas that we'd like to consider today in this presentation. So looking at manufacturing, uh, the uh, pr product uh, is one of the aspects of manufacturing that we need to focus on with the supply chain uh, issues and also some of the demand issues with companies uh, slowing down production and so on. Uh, people is a very important part of uh, the aspect of manufacturing. We need to be able to enable change and uh, uh, Angus will talk about the, the people aspects in a few minutes. And also how do we communicate, especially using some of the new uh, tools with smartphones and so on with the, the people in the organization and even outside the organization. Next, I'll be talking about the process uh, and how to use process uh, flows to identify infection risks and control infection in a facility, and also how do you improve the agility of manufacturing. Last but not least, uh, Anath will talk about the technology and uh, how we can use technology to facilitate uh, competitiveness uh, today. And then also, we'll next talk about the agenda items. Uh, first of all, we want to talk about the question of how do we manage and minimize workplace infections in the manufacturing environment? Uh, second is how do we operate within the supply chain? Uh, very important, again, the issues with the, a lot of the supply chains, especially coming from overseas, we've had the disruptions. Uh, but the, the theme again is a holistic approach TPQ, which stands for technology that supports people, process, and products. 
So again, we feel it's important to have this comprehensive holistic approach to managing after the pandemic. So for each of the elements, we're gonna talk about concepts, ideas and decisions and opportunities. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with a summary and uh, talk to and answer the questions that Mark is receiving as we go along. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to Steve to talk about the products. So the product section is we're emphasizing the uh, products and operational stages of what we've gone through over the last few months and are continuing to go through. The um, capacity utilization, we're using this as a model because I think it explains a lot of what we're seeing. Your traditional capacity utilization over time is fairly uh, level to a steady increase as you make tweaks and changes to your capacity. Uh, what we've experienced, is we've broken it into three stages. Stage one reflects the first part of when everything occurred um, from the, the pandemic standpoint. It's what companies were needing to operate and continue to operate during that time frame and offer how do you define what essential businesses to offer that and go through that stage two is how what do we do during uh during the stage of operations the shutdown of operations what kind of activities do we take what kind of planning do we have how are we anticipating when we come back what does that mean and and what are the new rules into effect in terms of shelter in place versus some companies that are working and some companies are not Stage three is, and we're kind of in, some of us are in stage three now, some of us are in stage two, but it's when we're, we're ready to restart operations. And how does that impact the, the uh, restart of operations? And what's the implications for companies that uh, I'm ready to restart, but my suppliers is not ready to restart? So what does that mean, uh, tell me? And what is the implications of what the new norm is gonna be. We're all starting to think and talk about what the new normal will be over time. And that that's really up in the air. And a lot depends on what we collectively as managers are able to um, operate through in that standpoint. The next section that I want to talk about is products uh, themselves and ideas and decisions. One of the things to realize is that um, the key component as managers is we need to fully understand the current and future supply chain. As I said, there are going to be companies that um, are waiting on product to be able to start operating, but haven't don't have the ability to uh, because their suppliers are out of sync. So getting that future supply chain in sync and what will that be over time frame? So we'll, we'll, we'll emphasize the supply chain. Business as we know it is going to change. We know that. Companies that uh, we're making product A, are now moving in to make product B uh, or replacing the current product, whether it's PP&E or whatever, there's a lot, a larger switch, a much larger switch that's going to occur in terms of new products. We're going to have new operations and methods and processes, and Roy's going to talk about those as we start to work through that. Supplier di diversification. You know, as we talked about, some of the big auto manufacturers are now making PP&E. Are they going to continue to do that? Are they going to switch their, their operations out uh, and do a little bit of, obviously, they're going to stay in manufacturing automotive, but are they going to start up new formats? The demand side is, is where it gets really dicey, I think, is that you're going to have new, the focus is changing. You're, you're going to have current and new customer mixes. What am I going to need now? How am I going to be able to project my demand focus or forecasting? What will that be in terms of demand when I don't know what's being sold? You know, we've seen in the retail side of it some huge increases over the last month as we start to migrate back and open things up, much more than people had originally anticipated. But what's the implications of that? The, the next and then what item, how are we going to produce items is changing. Anant's going to talk about technology, but there's a wealth of, of ways that we're going to need to look at 
how we do our manufacturing, how that state of environment is going to change. There's going to be new tactics for production and development. Um, hopefully during stage two and maybe in a little stage three, we did some upskilling of workforce where we had the opportunity for them to go in and gain skills that will better prepare them. When we come back in stage three, companies are going to be in a situation where they're going to have some of their workforce that's not going to come back for one reason or another. Some of them that are going to come back, but then they, they hopefully will have different skills and that functionality will improve their overall productivity down the road. But we don't know that for sure. The reshoring of production, we've talked about over the last six months where we're going to continue to be bringing products back domestically. I think that the pandemic is emphasizing that and increasing that need for bringing folks back domestically so we eliminate a lot of concerns, whatever those concerns are, depending upon where you're talking about. The core businesses are going to change. We've seen companies that have already gone out of business, some that are startups. And we're, that's going to continue for a prolonged period of time. Tool development. This is a perfect opportunity. As managers, this is a perfect opportunity, and Anant's going to address some of those, for integrating new tools, whether they're tools for your employees, whether they're in tools for uh, your production run. Um, but the whole component of how we use technology and integrate technology is going to be critical, and we have a perfect opportunity for introducing that. There's going to be market changes. We've already talked about that, and they're going to continue to shift and ebb and flow over the next six months or so. And then back to what I originally talked about, the capacity utilization. The changes in the product mix is going to change, as well as then the capacity will continue to uh, grow, and um, ideally, we'll head off on the right trend. Don't know that for sure yet. That's something still to, to see. Um, so that's kind of my piece of it. Uh, Angus is going to talk about people and communications and tie in some of the things that I was just addressing. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I'm in, incognito today and I join you to talk about people and communications. Um, you know, when we're talking about communications, it's not just about the message. Really, it's the building of trust which underpins everything that we should really be aiming to do. And uh, you know, there are two main rules about um, communication, the sort of the most important ones, I think, around managing communication, whether it's for staff, families or supply chain, that we need to under-promise and over-deliver. It's not always going to meet or exceed expectations. And then also to follow up, if we, whether it's an action uh, to do something or whether it's the next contact point, that we always are making those happen and not ever letting anybody down. We need to stay ahead of concerns, and for staff, that's going to mean things like, you know, uh, reliability of the infection layer for the staff. What about job losses? What about part-time, whether they're going to get full wages or not? And for customers and suppliers, we need to keep ahead of the news. In, in a pandemic or in any other major event that befalls uh, either an individual uh, company uh, or nationally or uh, pan-nationally, um, the news is out there very fast, and so we need to keep ahead of the news so that our customers and suppliers are well aware of what's happening and how are we going to mitigate the issues that are facing us and continue to buy or supply uh, in those situations. And as in the new normal, we should really be thinking more about uh, many of us, uh, many of us in companies, thinking about involving families in the new normal. You know, um, particularly in the pandemic at the moment, you have uh, workers going home and not actually going into the family home, but sleeping in a car or a garage or a camper van or something because they're frightened to, uh, to, to infect their family. And so the, it's important to involve families going forward, not just because of a pandemic, but just simply because it makes sense if a worker uh, doesn't want to come into work one morning, if the family realise that that worker is valued, that they have a uh, a, a great purpose at work, then um, it's it's the it's the partner that's likely to get that worker back out of the house and into work again uh, on that on that day. So as we move uh, forward into likely changes when back at work, we know, you know for sure there are likely to be more shifts unless they're already um, twenty four seven. 
Uh, those shifts are likely to stagger, for example, so that we get less people coming in and out of the doors at the same moment. And uh, for sure, a lot of the non-ops people are going to be working home from uh, again because you know many of them there already. We're discovering that a lot of them could have been there all the time anyway. So even if they're part-time rather than full-time at work, they're going to be working from home. And the great news is that we get about another 16 days free for people who work at home. So there's a, there's a definite advantage from that perspective. And for many companies in manufacturing, there's, there's likely to be a smaller headcount um, for sure. Um, that's going to help the infection situation. Um, but it's going to have local difficulties uh, naturally and uh, economic um, difficulties too. So as we move forward in thinking about the emergent needs in the new normal, you know, um, we spent a lot of time firefighting, not only just because of the pandemic, but before manufacturing in the US has been doing a lot of firefighting, mainly because of the difficulty in getting skilled staff or any staff that would actually want to stay in, in, in the industry. Um, and now is a good time to be stopping that and moving towards st structural strategic management and trying to advance our agile adaptation. You know, rather than the firefight to be ahead of the curve, be thinking rationally to making good decisions uh, and being agile and adapt uh, for the business, not to, in terms of the, um, the profitability of the business, competitiveness of the business, not just to deal with issues, right? Um, Upskilling in technology, of course, and Anant will address some of this in his section in technology shortly. Uh, and also, you know, the crisis strategy. Maybe we didn't have one coming into this, but now's a good time to be learning for what we learn in this period, not to miss anything that we learn, how to structure all that. And we should be really thinking about involving our supply chain in that because that will give them confidence. Remember, it's predicted that the next pandemic's only 10 years away. And, you know, we're living in America, so occasionally tornadoes come sweeping through and taking away businesses. It may be on a you know, very hard winter and very deep snow over a long period of time. What are our strategies for that? And if we communicate those, involve people in the supply chain, it will give them confidence to work and continue to give us business and to keep our business. One of the other things that we knew before the pandemic and is even more obvious to many companies now is that um, when people don't turn up for whatever reason, whether it's because they're in furlough or infected or simply because they don't want to come to work, then uh, we have to try and cover that. And it's the firefight. We have to get away from this. We really need to be thinking about multitasking to cover unexpected uh, absences. So uh, there's a model here, um, which some of you will uh, be familiar with, at least the left-hand side in blue, where we have a whole range of multitasking in terms of skills. So the blue ones are in skills. And then you have a number of um, elements above that. For example, you'll see uh, maintenance machines is darkened out there in the middle of the blue section. And a number of names. It's just to give you an idea. It's not a full chart, just to give you some idea. So the blue ones then are about um, this idea of calibrating the skills that individuals are at, have. And because it's visual, it's very fast to be able, if someone isn't missing, to find out who else can fill that role. How can you shuffle people around to keep production moving ahead, keep your manufacturing business moving ahead? So if you have no uh, sphere in any of those areas, you see a room B under maintain machine doesn't have anything, means that they have no knowledge or experience to any sort of level in that area. If they have one blue quadrant, it means they, they have some knowledge, but they're probably not applying it yet. If you have a half a quadrant filled with blue, that you're actually working in the role, and as you get three quadrants, then you're fully able to get on with the business without with very limited supervision. Uh, as, as a relatively expert person in that particular task. And then if you have a full circle in blue, that you are able not only to do the task, you can probably supervise and mentor other people to do that also. And then you'll see with Lindy C, as it crosses uh, intersects with maintain machine, there's a square around that one. Uh, and the square uh, indicates that individual can do repair and maintenance. So they're probably in a maintenance role. And you see Lindy's probably just started that. She knows about the machine, maybe never used it. 
But, you know, if you're looking for someone to fill a role on a particular machine, then that person could, with a little supervision, because they know the machine, they've maintained the machine, could apply themselves under supervision to take over a role there. And then on the uh, green side, this is all about behaviors. So this is not quite so historical. And the last 15, maybe nearly 20 years or so, many big companies, including some of the companies I uh, have been and am uh, involved with, uh, like the biggest mining company in the world, for example, and GE, for example, have included what are called behavioral norms. So again, the, the symbols represent exactly the same thing, but now we see things like infection control as a behavioral norm, assertion as a behavioral norm, questioning, accountability, and things like that there. Now, all this will enable uh, a company to calibrate all that, to certificate and all that, and make sure we have the right people in the right place in changeable times. Now, it's worth saying briefly about bite-sized learning. You know, uh, in the furlough time, for those who have furloughed, some people, we hope, will, will have been doing some training. Um, maybe in the next couple of months or certainly in the fall, there's a chance that there may be some more furloughs, more staff missing, more infection problems uh, in industry, maybe some more closures coming too. So this is an example of a, uh, an app, my, one of my own actually, um, on uh, staff retention. And you see this is session four. It's on communication strategies for retention. And this would show up on an iPad or on a cell phone. has an introduction on the left. And in the middle, it's just giving an indication of what, uh, what the next step is on a daily basis or a session basis. And, and then on the right-hand side as well, you see um, for this particular day, you might have to read something. Uh, which is what's on the screen in the middle. You might have to view an actual video. In this case, it's one of my own. And then the next section is a read, and then there's a view another video as it happens. Sometimes there might be a quiz or whatever. And then finally, a brief uh, reflection, which you might share on the, on the social platform. So there's a sort of social uh, ability to mix with other people in the same company or within a whole group of companies, for example. So finally, I'd like to just have a look at competing and growing. So this is really about the psychology of pandemic and post-pandemic. You know, have we got this right? Are we going to be uh, firefighting to, to get people in the right places? Or are we going to grow our businesses? Are we going to take a positive view of things? We, we like to call it this is glass half full. It's an old uh, expression, but the glass half full is better than glass half empty. And um, the idea is that we can think about these uh, this whole pandemic and the way out of it is not only an opportunity just to catch back new business, but to compete better, to hone ourselves better. And Anant will speak a little to this uh, also later, but to grow that business. And for example, some operators may be able to work remotely using uh, AV and control. Some in some actual you know, shop floor managers and um, examples might include, for example, uh, things like maintenance, where you have a specialist who's uh, maybe out somewhere but could, with the use of AV, guide someone else who knows the machine a little bit, knows how to use a torque wrench uh, to fix something um, that they wouldn't be able to do without that expert knowledge. And then we need to build an agile team. That means being flexible, being able to move quickly, not just because there's a pandemic, because, you know, business is volatile these days. It's uncertain. It's complex. There's ambiguity. Uh, in it. Our, comp our competitors are not just next door anymore, they're global. So we need to be uh, able to move fast to do that. And lastly, not least, you know, we need to demonstrably value people. And that means training them. We need to pay and reward them. We need to give them recognition um, for, what, for what they're doing. And uh, so with that, I'd like to pass on to, uh, to Roy Vasha to speak about uh, BSMI and infection risk. Thanks, Angus. Uh, so, uh, as the slide says, uh, we're going to introduce today a new concept, BSMI, to mitigate infection risk. So, uh, what is BSMI? So, what we've done is we've taken uh, the old uh, acronym, Value Stream Mapping, uh, BSM for Value Stream Mapping, and we've added an element called infection risk mitigation. Uh, so value stream mapping is a methodology that was initially used by Toyota. And since I've worked several years at Toyota, I'm well aware of how Toyota uses it to eliminate waste and to make improvements. But now it is a vital tool that is used by lean practitioners around the world. 
So what we like to talk about is doing a BSMI map that provides a visual representation across the plant floor for you to enable, enable you to identify potential risk of areas of infection. So this is a, what I call a logical, typical value stream map, and I'll just talk about the different elements. So uh, just a, a, an example of a, a flow through the factory floor, we've got uh, symbols here, rectangles and the smiley faces indicating where a worker is at a station uh, in the process flow. Over here in the welding and buff, there's no uh, people because that's a machine only operation. So that's the, the basic uh, flow of a value stream map, but to make a, 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 a valuable to analyze, we need to add data about each process. So we add things like cycle time, number of workers, scrap rate, and so on. Then finally, a typical value stream map adds a timeline that shows value added time and non-value non added time. So this gives us a, a good understanding of how to identify the different types of waste uh, in the manufacturing or any business, whether it's manufacturing or a workflow in an office. So these are the seven waste, and I won't uh, talk about those now, but uh, I think most of you are aware of those. But there's a, another element now is infection risk. So we need to kind of figure out how can we use this tool of barrier mapping uh, to analyze infection risk. So what I've done here is I've turn the Bastrian map from a logical view to a area view or a top-down view of the factory and laid out a, a grid that shows the different aisles and the different dimensions of a factory. And then we can superimpose the flow chart from the uh, Bastrian map on the factory floor. And now this is just a, an example, but the idea is you show the actual physical locations of the different processes across the, the floor and identify where the people are standing and, and so on. Uh, the next step is that we can identify where there's a potential risk for infection. For example, these circles that are kind of reddish indicate that these workers are less than six feet apart. So that is a risk. Uh, we have a mobile worker or a supervisor here uh, that, that is uh, obviously mobile by definition means he or she is roaming around and could inadvertently cross paths with another worker. Well, we've got aisleways here that potentially are narrow and could uh, be a, an area of risk of people walking too close to each other. So those are examples of potential risks. So now one of the ideas is how do we uh, mitigate those risks? So this worker here that was standing on the other side of this cutting machine Maybe we can move him or her to the other side to mitigate that risk without a major disruption. Uh, the supervisor could wear a sensor. I know companies like Ford have uh, adopted like a wristband to identify uh, people that are too close. Uh, Purdue Electrical and Computing Department is developing a, a badge sensor that can be uh, affixed to your badge to do the same thing to identify and buzz when you're within six feet. The other thing that Purdue is doing is developing a sensor that can identify the time that you want to quarantine parts. For example, if you're getting parts in from a supplier, maybe you want to quarantine them for four hours or some period of time. The sensor will turn a light on green after that period of time. So those are examples of items we can use technology to improve the uh, infection risk. And another thing is that we can make aisles one way rather than two ways. So these are, again, examples, but the whole concept is using the map to identify the actual physical flow across the factory floor. So one of the big advantages, if you have a CAD computer-aided design software tool, it would be much more useful to do the value stream map on the factory floor uh, using that software, because then you could get actual dimensions and actual placement of the machines and workstations. In addition, the, the CAD software can be used to do a 3D view and it can be used to do simulations so you can actually 
simulate the relocation of machines and workstations without actually doing a trial and error in the, in the actual movement. And then uh, lastly, you can also use it to identify traffic patterns around the factory floor and to redesign the flow to keep workers separated by six feet when walking around. For example, creating the one-way routes on either side of the aisles rather than one aisle. So these are examples of how to use the software as a tool to do BSMI mapping. So in the short term, uh, if you're a lean expert, you can kind of imagine some of these infection uh, risk mitigations may have a negative impact on being lean or efficient. Uh, but I think looking at the future and uh, talking about uh, redesigning the factory to not only be safe, but more efficient by strategic adoption of smart technology. I think that is a way that we can gain back and maybe even go further with the efficiency that we may have lost with the pandemic uh, risk mitigations. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague Anat to talk about technology. Uh, thank you, Roy. Thanks again uh, for listening to us. Uh, at this point, you've heard about uh, products and how products have to adjust. We have heard about people and we have heard about processes. And Roy set us up to think about technology. And many of my colleagues have already thought about the kinds of technology you can think about. We want to think about why the economics of technology need to be re-examined. Because one could argue that uh, considering technology is something manufacturers do all the time. And the main point we want to make is with the pandemic, it might actually be economically feasible to adopt technology at much lower values, volumes than before. And the kinds of technology that we're going to talk about are going to have three characteristics. One is that they are scalable, which means you need to you can try them in one portion of your plant, get to know them, and then expand it to other portion of the plant. That's that's scalable. The second is that they should be reconfigurable. Uh, Roy mentioned before the idea of a Bluetooth sensor being considered at Ford and being developed here. Uh, the rules regarding whether it should be six feet, eight feet, or three feet may be changing. And we need to adapt to the CDC and WHO norms. So it has to be reconfigurable. The third is, uh, depending on how you want to organize it, it could be decentralized. That is, you could decide that you do not want to monitor everybody. You just want to give them alerts that they use to protect themselves. Uh, other firms may actually want to keep track of it. So what we're going to do is first talk about how to think about technology and rethink the economics of technology. Uh, forgive me for becoming putting on my professor hat for a minute, but I just want to take a few steps to get one to, to try to convince you that maybe the economics need rethinking. So for now, consider the y-axis, which is cost, and the x-axis is volume. And let's assume for now there's a technology that costs us a certain cost per unit time, and it is flat with respect to volume. Now, before the pandemic, if you're deciding should I adopt the technology or not, you would think about your labor cost as a function of volume, and you would think of the intersection point, and the intersection point here is at a volume level A. So what that means, the break-even analysis tells us, is if your volumes are to the left of A, you would not adopt the technology. If your volumes are to the right of A, adopting the technology is actually lower cost than using labor. So this is, you might imagine, is being done. Now let's just think about what would happen if, in fact, uh, we, we adopt many of the tools that Roy just talked about, VSMI. The net effect of VSMI is because we're trying to protect our employees, the overall labor cost per unit volume goes up. It might be because we may need to run an extra shift. We may need more people. We may need to slow down the production line. Every one of these things really costs us a higher per unit labor cost. Now, what's the impact of that in this picture? All it does is it changes the slope of the labor cost line. It moves it to the left. Now, what happens if the labor cost per unit volume goes up? Well, notice that now the new break-even point moves from A to B. It moves to the left. And what does it say? Well, with these higher per unit labor costs, we actually would consider adopting technology at any volume to the right of B 
So between A and B, now all of a sudden, this technology becomes something to consider. But that's not all. If we keep going, what would happen? As companies start adopting the technology, the technology companies lower the costs. And that's just because they get scale economies. Now, what happens if the cost of the technology goes down? Now, if you repeat the analysis, we've moved from B to C. Notice that we have gone from A to B to C, basically suggesting that technology might be something to reconsider now for many reasons. One, because to protect your employees, your labor costs per unit are going up. And B, the cost of these technologies also rapidly going down as more people adopt. So you could think of this as sort of a conceptual idea, but how do, we, how do we sort of think about it in real terms? So let's think about recovery and technology. And so consider, for example, the fact that we suddenly need far more frequent cleaning of all of our facilities. Now, you might say, well, one way to do is to hire more janitors, hire more custodial staff. But uh, I don't know about all of you, but many of you are probably thinking about buying a Roomba robot in your own homes. And these are autonomous robots, and we have them in our home. Uh, based on a schedule, the robot goes around cleaning up places. There's another robot that mops up the place. So cleaning robots become an efficient way to, to enable hygiene, to clean more frequently, and keep it autonomous. The same thing is being used even by retailers in their own retail, retail uh, outlets. The second are assistive robots. Now, Roy mentioned the example of moving some people around. So if you move people around where there may have been two people who are lifting something, there's one person. Well, how does this person uh, work comfortably without hurting themselves? That's a place where assistive robots have become more popular. And these assistive robots or cobots are things that can be easily programmed. You actually just move them around to get them to learn. Then we think about infection control and sensor-based tracking and alerts. Uh, Roy provided an example of uh, some of the ideas being explored by, uh, by Ford Motor Company and technology that we're developing here at Purdue along with our students. And there are many such sensor-based technologies, some of which use Bluetooth and RFID, and others use cameras. Then there are surface and object quarantines. And, and this is something where, for example, even if you have shared tools, very often, people would just hand off a tool to someone. Well, you can no longer do it. You may have to set the tool down, walk away. The next person picks up the tool. There may need to be some quarantine in between. All of that uh, may, be, may be important. Uh, one of the things that becomes important is cleaning agents, which are called virucidal cleaners. Uh, there are new UV technologies, which are called far UV, et cetera. And one of the ways in which you're interacting with with your customers and your suppliers. Uh, today is, is an example. We normally would have met at a conference and we would have a presentation in a room. Now we're all sitting with little digital windows interacting with each other. And that can be thought of as omni-channel. And finally, one of the things that is becoming particularly important, uh, whenever we talk about autonomy, we really need some leveraging of uh, artificial intelligence, AI tools, and machine learning tools. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, the good news with that is with all of these things and with video analytics, all of them have the following features. A, they are scalable. That is, you can try them in one portion of your plant before you expand. Uh, one of the things that, that Steve talked about is what do you do during stage two when people are working remotely? Well, they can get familiar with these tools, uh, have, you know, have the capability to deploy them. All of these things are things you can do. The second is that they're reconfigurable. In all of these cases, you can reconfigure your robot for the different cleaning sequence and a different timing. You can reconfigure your assistive robots. You can reconfigure. And finally, one option that many companies are talking about is creating a digital twin of your facility. And digital twins were popularized by General Electric. Now there are many much there are, there are easier tools available to simulate your operation. So you can know in advance that your employees are protected, that everything can be, can be done on time, et cetera. Uh, lastly, uh, if you're going to train at a distance, so if you're onboarding new employees, very often there's an experienced employee who's helping them. Now you can have uh, augmented reality glasses that they can wear and get assistance. Uh, there are a lot of recent reports coming out. One of the examples was 
uh, Intel and a, and, a, and, a, and a machine and a, a company called ASML in the Netherlands. And ASML's technicians walked Intel employees through some repairs on ASML equipment from a distance. And so this allows everything to come back to normal. It gets uh, maintenance being provided as a service, et cetera. Uh, some of the things that we're learning is while we keep track of people and, and we keep track of surfaces, one of the things that's vitally important is the air we breathe. And here at Purdue, uh, in anticipation of students coming back to campus, we are recirculating fresh air every eight minutes into every room. With the logic being is that fresh air decreases contaminants that you would breathe in, et cetera. And so, you know, thinking about HEPA filters, thinking about your HVAC system might be something important. And along with that comes the role of sensors. Now, of course, uh, you, you can't have an educator without talking about learning. So remote learning is something that all of us have to get used to. Uh, this webinar is an example of remote learning. And I think that this is going to become the norm. Uh, this doesn't take away from the fact that at some point when it's convenient, we'll all like to get out of our rooms and get out of our basements and interact with each other. But that doesn't mean we cannot provide the service that's possible. So I want to take the last few minutes to give you a quick wrap up of some of the ideas that we've been talking about. If there's one thing we'd like you to remember is TPQ, the acronym. Uh, and if somebody asks you, T is technology, then we have product, people, and process. And we think this is important because this is the way you can get agility. The people that you've treated well and whose families are comfortable that they're going to be taken care of when they come to work, these are the people who will help you compete. They will help you identify which products to target. They will help you execute the process. And technology is available at price points that will help make this happen. The second is agility. Uh, Steve talked about the supply chain demand and supply and the need to be agile. We think that the TPQ approach gets you to think holistically about how to bring your organization back. Uh, finally, uh, Angus talked about this perspective of is the glass half full or half empty? And our perspective is how come capacity utilization of the, of the glass is 50%? It has 50% more capacity to fill. And that's the perspective we're taking. And we think that, that if this, this entire group comes together, uh, it's, it provides a holistic way to compete. So, so with that, what I'd like to do is just remind you that this is what our pitch was, a TPQ approach to manage manufacturing competitiveness. And as Roy said, it expands beyond manufacturing. Uh, we have a little picture here of a, of a set of four people who have just managed to go down some whitewater uh, you know, uh, rafting and have emerged successful. And on their paddles, you see, you see the four uh, components of TPQ. Uh, we're actually working on a book that's coming out soon, and we would love it if you get an opportunity to give us feedback when, when the book appears. We're in the final stages, and uh, we expect that this should be available next month. So with that, we would love to turn, we are ready to turn this back over to Mark and answer any questions that, that he would, he, you know, all of you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Ananth, and uh, thank you, everybody, for delivering, giving uh, on-time delivery to the Q&A portion here. But I do have a couple quick announcements. We've got a lot of questions um, already, and, and I'm sure more will keep coming in. So if you can advance this, Roy, I'll try to do the announcements as efficiently as possible. Our next webinar that we invite everybody to is going to be held on July 8th. Um, it's going to be presented by Dan Markovitz, who's the author of many books, including his most recent book called The Conclusion Trap, it's available now. So his webinar is gonna be uh, called Better Decision Making, Avoiding the Conclusion Trap and Other Pitfalls. So Dan is calling this, um, it is a webinar, but he's also calling it an interactive virtual workshop. So the way he's got this structured, it's actually going to be 75 minutes long, which is um, a little bit different than our usual webinars. If you go and register now at kinexus.com slash webinars, everybody who registers will have a chance to win one of three copies of Dan's new book. So I hope everyone will check that out. Uh, next, please. For Kinexus customers, um, this Thursday, two days from now, um, Greg Jacobson and Ryan Rippey are going to be sharing their Kinexus 2020 mid-year product update. Uh, they're going to talk about 
um, new updates and, and what's in the works for our Kinexus software. So again, you can register for that at kinexus.com slash webinars. Uh, next, please. We do have other resources. If this is the first time you are attending a Kinexus webinar, we certainly invite you to go check out um, all of the previous webinars that are available for on-demand viewing. There's um, a, a big button in the right-hand sidebar um, to find those at kinexus.com slash webinars. You can also find those on our YouTube channel if you search YouTube for Kinexus webinars. Um, we have a blog at blog.kinexus.com. And finally, uh, next please, uh, we have a podcast. You can find us, um, I need to update this graphic. We have an updated um, icon, but it's the Kinexus Continuous Improvement Podcast. The audio from today's webinar will be in that podcast series, as was the uh, preview that all of our panelists today did uh, a couple weeks back. You can find that at kinexus.com slash podcast, or you can find us basically any place, any app or um, directory where you find podcasts. Um, so with that, we will um, go into uh, the Q&A. Um, so earlier on, you talked about reshoring. I was wondering if you could talk about you know, when that's a realistic solution or not, what are the implications in um, looking at the, uh, you know, the, uh, the impact on competitive advantage for the organization? A volunteer to take that question. Anath, you want to take that? Yeah. So, so first, I think, I think um, um, reshoring is a way to reduce supply chain risk. Now, whether it is an economic solution for 100% of your volume, that's something to consider because there is the reality that you've got to provide a hedge against supply uncertainty, but there's also the economic reality that you're to run a business. I think what is interesting is uh, that the, 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 uh, the decision to reshore had started well before this pandemic just because of trade frictions, tariff issues, et cetera. One thing that local manufacturers have done when they lost volume is invested in technology. So it's possible that the reshored supply chain might well involve far greater use of automation, but local domestic production. So as an example, as 3D printing and the economics of 3D printing, whether with metal or plastic or other things change, all of a sudden it becomes a lot more realistic to combine a variety of components into a complex part that's 3D printed and therefore uh, therefore affordable. So the answer is it's probably, uh, the answer is depends, but the answer is it's probably worth thinking about both as a way to manage risk as well as as a way to sort of think about product redesign so that you can become agile. I just wanna add a quick comment when it comes to reshoring, there's, um a nonprofit group called the Reshoring Initiative. Mm -hmm. They have a website. It's um, www.reshorenow.org. And Harry Moser, the, uh, the, 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 the founder of that group, they have a really interesting online calculator to look at the total cost of supply chain, global supply chain sourcing, sourcing decisions. And um, you know, they, they find a lot of times people overestimate the benefits of offshoring and underestimate some of the total supply chain costs. And then there's the risk dynamic, like you said, and not. So that, that's one other resource I would invite people to go check out. Um, as with a lot of things, like you said, it depends and different calculators and frameworks can help us with that. Um, so another question here, um, if you can elaborate on the relationship between um, sustainability and the COVID-19 effect. Well, so this, this actually could go both ways. And the reason I say that is the following. Uh, now, sustainability meant creating a recycling loop and being very careful about waste. The benefit of being careful about waste is that your existing supply goes much further than it earlier was. So one thought is sustainability could be linked to maintaining high quality, could be maintaining the ideas of do it right the first time. So that aspect of sustainability is totally on point. But there's another aspect with infection that we have to worry about, and that is to protect people and to prevent any contaminants, et cetera. 
And here, and, and by the way, a lot of this information is evolving on a daily basis. The question is, if you look at cardboard surfaces, plastic surfaces, metal surfaces, et cetera, what is the transmission across these surfaces? And if we decide, for example, that the best way to reduce infections is to put a lot of packaging around it at all times, then packaging increases. So I think that is the little push and pull that, that we would need to think about. Uh, in the long run, and this is something which is basically and aside, right? Uh, all of a sudden, because of lower cars on the road, et cetera, the population in general has started breathing cleaner air. And they've started getting used to it. Of course, it's been going on for a while, so they've gotten used to it. Well, what if they demand it? If they demand it, then this will be something they'll expect out of the companies that provide them products. So if that happens, so one of the things I think uh, I've been an advocate of is sort of voluntary compliance to environmental standards because your customers demand it. And you alert the customers that you're being careful about waste, you're being careful about the water you use, the pollution you have, the sources of energy for two reasons. A, it's good business. It allows you to operate more efficiently. And B, it communicates to your customer that you're managing smart. So the net effect when all of this is put together, I think it's, 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 uh, it's anybody's guess. But I think all of those, if customers come back being more aware of the environment, my guess is this, this can't be a choice. This will be what we need to compete. Yeah. And I think it's interesting when you look at choices and things that are perceived as trade-offs, um, single-use versus reusable. People might say now, well, we need more single-use because we don't want um, potential viral load on those items. But maybe that, that leads to um, materials that are, if not recyclable, compostable, um, plant-based materials and things that may allow us to break that yes. perceived trade-off. Um, Roy, there's a follow-up question to your VSMI um, section. What software was used to generate in the example, the, the, the VSMI in the example that you showed? Okay, well, I don't have a CAD software product in my desktop, so I just used Excel. So I just created a Excel grid in, uh, as an example, but uh, you could certainly use, Visio would be more uh, illustrative and certainly the CAD would be much more accurate. Okay, thanks. And then there was a follow-up question. I'm going to ask it a little bit more generally. Um, you know, are, are, there, are there certain settings where having workers six feet apart might just not be possible within, you know, the kind of way um, a process is, is set up, the way the process technology is? They were asking about um, steel fabrication, which I, I don't know if any of us know about steel settings. But I mean, there's, maybe there's a broader question of like, what if the process just inherently requires people to be close together? Sure. Well, I think there's examples like in meat meatpacking plants where they're putting uh, shields between workers or certainly wearing face guards. Uh, so I think a combination of those type of techniques uh, would be a, an option. We had an example of a company that basically, uh, you know, minimized the number of people who had to work together. But when they had to work together, they wore the equivalent of like a hazmat suit during periods of time and had breaks built in so that, you know, they don't spend the entire day in that suit. So, but uh, I think in the example of, of, of that uh, company, it was just uh, a, a small handful of people who literally had to work next to each other. For many other cases, the reason they have to work next to each other, because we don't have cobots or assistive tools or other things. But if you rethink the process, there might be solutions uh, that, that would minimize the number of people who really have to work next to each other. Yeah, and just being um, creative. Um, there's going to be more necessity for um, more creativity. Um, one, one thing that came to mind when we were talking about the distancing and spacing, you know, if you have uh, assembly operations, whether it's a, a tightly connected assembly line or um, more batchy operations where material flows, you know, I wonder if there's concern about um, the spread of virus from successive manufacturing. Um, I, I wonder if this leads to, and, and the answer might be it depends, but more, um, you know, kind of a classic lean U-shaped manufacturing cells 
where uh, one person can literally do all of the work in the cell themselves. That might require many, many copies of that cell to hit certain volumes, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious if any of you have thoughts on sure. that possibility. Yeah, I think that's part of the uh, redesign. And, and again, like I said, if you can use like a CAD system to play with those type of designs, use shape and, and whether one person can do three, you know, operate three different machines or two or whatever, I think that's uh, exactly right that you, you could uh, maybe minimize the number of people that have to work close together. Yeah, I think I think one thing, uh, and Roy had mentioned it in when he was talking about VSMI. Uh, one of the things that we're looking at is to add a sensor that allows temporary quarantining of product. So if you think about a tightly coupled system and you add in some inventory buffers, the net effect of the inventory buffer is that it delays the time from when the first person uh, completed a job to go to the second one. Now, granted, that is not ideal under lean. However, it might be something to consider in a VSMI framework. Now, the amount of time you've got to set it up, that goes back to the reconfigurable sensor. So we're actually designing a sensor which says, well, if it is something that has a metal surface, this is the button you press and it's quarantined, it has a red light on it, it becomes green and you can use it. And similarly, if it has a plastic layer versus something. So that is where I think there's room to be creative and as we know more about the virus and its transmission and we get new rulings, we can just re, uh, you know, recalibrate the devices. Uh, one of the techniques we're using is Bluetooth-based software update. So you just walk around with a laptop that Bluetooth updates all these devices and you're in business right away. So I think one of the things that we're pushing is whatever plan we come up with, we need to adjust to the new regulations and so we don't need, we don't want to come up with solutions that are hard coded in because when new realities come in, and while I hope it never happens, I hope we don't have another wave or this or that or sporadic infections. But if we nip it in the bud by reacting quickly, we can protect all our employees and get, and that's the approach that we can take. And it uh, just adds to that because uh, when you think about uh, the respiratory threats as opposed to the surface uh, uh, threats you're talking about, the, the, uh, there are two main respiratory ways to get infected. One is that proximal thing about being close to one another, uh, but the other is the actual loading in the air of any virus that's in the air and in that space. So mitigation is to reduce the number of people in the space, number one. Uh, and secondly, as Anant alluded to earlier, to do with the uh, this eight minutes changeover of the air is to increase the air changes as you get an operating theatre. You know that's normally three three changes every every uh, hour, whatever it is in an operating theatre. The different countries have different uh, stats for that, uh, and uh, so you need more fresh air basically coming in. That's easier in the summer, uh, unless it's incredibly hot, uh, than it is in in the winter, obviously. Okay, um, there's one more question and I think we're um, out of time and for anyone who has to, to cut off, um, jump out, we're, we're still recording. There were two similar questions about, you know, kind of looking at um, trade-offs or, or total cost. One is, you know, if you're looking at technology, there's the cost of the technology, but there's also the cost of implementation and training. And then there's a second question about um, the cost of robots, but then also considering the cost to maintain, program, clean, disinfect. So in situations like that, whether it's robots or other technology, how would you best most effectively look at total cost? I, I think first, I think it is important to look at total cost. But the one thing I think that the point I think we're trying to emphasize mm -hmm. is that those economics just changed. They changed because uh, protecting employees was not a choice. It's a given. You're going to have to protect your employees so they come back. And in order to protect them, it just became more expensive. So one thing you could think of as well, costs increased. So typically in a business, if your costs increase and you can't increase price, your margins decreased. Well, is it possible that the technology providers are willing to listen and adapt and provide technology at different price points? Uh, just as one thinks about software as a service, there are lots of cases where with cloud computing, you're paying by use. So I think that's where I see, you know, we see a sweet spot in, in, in adopting the technology. 
One thing that is important is it's not just the cost of purchasing the technology. It's maintaining, keeping it up, et cetera. And that's really where one of the things that's new and actually just rolling out now is a lot of sort of predictive maintenance with the machine learning built in where uh, equipment is flagging to the supplier that there's an issue. So I think that is really where the economics are improving. Uh, but bottom line, one has to think about total cost of ownership. It's just that that calculation probably needs to be redone in the new normal where we're focused on keeping our employees safe. And then I, the other thing maybe as a final thought, the one thing I've heard you talk about today, it's not just the known costs, there are the risks of potential costs that yeah. we have to somehow factor in. What is the risk of the cost of a huge outbreak of COVID-19 in our Absolutely. facility? Absolutely. And, and I, think, I think along those lines, I think uh, as supply chains try to come back, one of the things that, uh, one of the words that, that we, we want to emphasize is the word uh, competitiveness, which is that if you don't do it and your competitor is ready to supply, guess what? You just lost market share. So there's a much bigger play. There's also a top line play rather than just the cost side, which typically us operations people look at, there is a top line play that's important. And I think once one thinks about the top line, a lot of this might actually make a, a, a lot more business sense and is worth, is worth considering. All right, well, um, I wanna thank all of our uh, presenters today. Uh, Ananth and Roy, thank you. Um, Angus, I know you're still there, thank you. Steve just texted me, he had an internet problem and, and he uh, dropped off. So um, I wanna thank all of our attendees from around the world for um, attending and participating today. Again, we will be sending out an email that you'll get tomorrow that will have a link to the recording um, and the slides. And we're getting a lot of thank you comments coming in through um, chat and Q&A. So um, thank you again, and um, hope we'll see everyone here uh, for upcoming webinars. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for the thank opportunity, you, Mark. Mark, and thanks for listening. Yes, thank you. Bye. Thank you very much.